Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cool day in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's programme we'll be joined by former England cricket skipper and champion of mental health causes these days, Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Mike Kelly alongside me. Mike is the managing director at kitlocker.com, a business based in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, which was formed in 2005 with a vision to significantly improve the level of service that exists within the university teamwear industry. Uh, Mike, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves, Mike. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation that has blighted this year, let's start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders in all walks of life of our time, really. But how has it affected you and your business operations over the last few months? Um, so, wow, I guess, uh, to sort of start off with, um, it, it, as you say, it's been uh, it, it's something that's completely unprecedented. Um, and, and obviously, we've, we've been in business for around about 15 years. So we've kind of been through a recession, but um, the kind of pandemic and all, all things related has been, um, yeah, it, it's been very kind of uh, sort of interesting thing to work through, I sh- kind of, I, I should say. Um and it's kind of completely affected everything, or it, it did start off with with us. Um, so, effectively, all of our kind of core markets sort of went very much into shutdown, which um, uh, I think uh, we we weren't sense, um, and we're quite spread. So, we work um, in kind of a wide range of sort of grassroots sports, from from football to sort of indoor sports. Mm. Um, but we also do an awful lot of kind of project-based work as well with some, some quite sort of notable organisations. Um, and, and everything kind of went very much into a shutdown early on. Um, and we saw quite a big shift in our business from um, what we deemed to be our kind of core sort of strands to uh, very much kind of individual um, sort of purchases um, where, where people going into lockdown and, and just wanted to, to kind of get themselves geared up for... Uh, for, for kind of continuing kind of fitness pursuits from 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 home effectively, um, but but then it was also very much a case that um, it, this this affected both suppliers and obviously staff. So as a as a kind of business leader, it's been uh, it's been really quite um, a difficult time to, to sort of work through all of those different components. Um, and then for us, the, the sort of increased sort of health and safety uh, considerations, um, it, it, especially early on, it felt like it was uh, challenges on all fronts, should we say. And what do you think the long-term implications of the pandemic will ultimately be on your industry in particular? Well, well this is it. So where I kind of referenced that we're, we're relatively well spread, um, when I look at our kind of grassroots sports markets, um, there's been... It's the indoor kind of side of things. So when you're looking at the sports such as basketball, netball, volleyball, have been very hard uh, hard hit by this. Um, and, and then even certain kind of outdoor sports. But where we look at kind of core grassroots markets around football and, and some of the other kind of outdoor sports, 
they're they're quite hardy marketplaces, and, and obviously with there's a big drive to kind of get kids back playing football and, and sort of adult football back. So it's been it hasn't been as hard hit as we thought it would be. Mm. Um, so I think when it started out, we we kind of expected not to really see much in terms of sporting pursuit until uh, 2021, I think was our kind of uh, how we kind of forecast. So um, it's been the, the kind of hurt, the, the sort of shift back to, to kind of normality and especially in kind of grassroots sports came an awful lot quicker than we thought and posed us with an awful lot of challenges. Um, but as we kind of transitioned through, so we do an awful lot of in, in, in education supply as well. So secondary schools and uh, and colleges and academies have kind of come back and there's a sense of normality there to some mm. degree from a, from a kind of sporting sense. But we're now transitioning into what would usually be quite a busy university period. And uh, and obviously no one really quite knows. It's a, a very challenging time for, for, for the sector. So um, I guess we're sort of waiting for the next few weeks and months to play out into Christmas to see to see how that kind of shapes up. Very challenging time for, for all kind of students going back and uh, and the, the kind of universities kind of coordinating that. Mm. You're absolutely right. It is a very difficult and a very sensitive time for a great many people. But what we have seen during this period as well are some positives in the sort of dark and dense cloud that sort of hung over all of us during this year, because we've seen a lot of innovation, haven't we, in business as it's developed and adapted to try and meet the challenges of the pandemic. And that's certainly been a huge help, particularly the transition to using technology as we've seen. But from your point of view, Mike, are there any positives that KitLocker can take away from this period? Um, I, I think it's very similar in that, um, again, early on, we were forced to, to kind of reassess, um, not necessarily how we deliver stuff, but our kind of focus on uh, on the marketplaces that we, we kind of um, put ourselves in front of. We're very much sort of online based as it is. Um, so that kind of shift to digital wasn't... Um, it, it didn't affect us too much. We were quite suited for that. Um, but what we did have to do was become sharper in uh, in areas where we do kind of currently trade. So this sort of, um, I kind of reference this sort of direct-to-consumer sort of purchase element. But that, um, it, it came with its challenges and, and we had to really quite work hard on, on sort of perfecting that to, to, to try and sort of make the best of a what was a really quite bad situation and one that we, we felt it was going to last longer than it actually did, if that makes sense. So mm. the the kind of return of our core markets meant that we've we've perfected an area or kind of improved an area uh, in the business, which I think will actually kind of benefit us longer term, um, which which is great for us, I think. Now, backtracking, if we just look at the topic of leadership just a little bit more broadly and move away from the current COVID-19 situation, I understand that kitlocker.com's origins were back in 2005. And as I mentioned in the introduction, the vision behind that was to improve the level of service that exists within the university teamware industry. But what exactly was that penny dropping moment, the inspiration, which basically made you think that going into business, founding a business for yourselves was going to be the way forward for you? Well, I wish I could. Um, I wish I could say that it was uh, it was something a little more grandiose than it actually is. But I was tasked with writing a business plan in my second year of my um, my undergraduate degree, um, and being very heavily involved in uh, the volleyball committee. Um, myself and a good friend of mine, kind of co-founder of Kit Locker, um, 
we saw massive failings in the university supply of, of sportswear, effectively. Um, and this was back in 2005. This was a very different place in terms of the kind of e-commerce provision uh, across the board, but especially in this industry. So I think we were the first company to launch online stores specifically for university supply. Mm. Um, and we've passed for sort of 15 years now, and we, we operate maybe five or 600 stores for, for lots of different clubs and organizations across quite a wide spectrum. So it's very much evolved from the original roots in terms of our uh, kind of the, the marketplaces that we work in. But the actual core principle of the business is still very much um, fundamental to what we do. Absolutely. And um, you say as a business, you've come through, of course, not just this current COVID-19 situation so far, but also a recession. And then when you're sort of facing a time of crisis as a business, I suppose when you're an employee at said business, the reaction would be to look to the business leaders for inspiration and direction during such a time. However, when you're the one at the top of the tree who's sort of running the whole show and there isn't anybody above you to consult in the same way, when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself in a time of difficulty, where is it that you tend to go looking to find that? Um, I, I, I kind of there, there's no one particular place that I'll kind of look for, for specific, specific inspiration, and I really have to admit that the the early um, the kind of early onset of the, the sort of pandemic or the early time in the pandemic, it was incredibly challenging, um, and. I've, I've never been tested quite so much as uh, as in the kind of early throes of, of lockdown and what that meant for the the business across the board and especially the staff. Um, such a challenging time for those that were on. We, we had to place an awful lot of the, the kind of team on furlough. Um, we're quite fortunate and our digital approach means that our office staff could work from home quite easily. With, that was mm. quite an easy transition to make. Um, but our kind of our operational team, so our kind of production and our warehousing staff, it, it, it creates quite a challenging kind of conditions because they, they have to be on site to, to, to effectively work. Mm. Um, but in terms of inspiration and kind of getting through, it's difficult. There's, it, it was more people closer to home. So um, whether it was my, my parents, for argument's sake, or even my partner's parents, um, and my partner is a, is a doctor, and it, it gives a very different kind of insight and um, it allowed me to almost kind of see things in, in a better context, in a wider context. Um, and whilst it was very challenging for the business, having a look at the, the, the sort of wider implications of this, it, it sort of helped to put things into that kind of context and, uh, uh, and, and try and rationalise things. But I have to admit it was incredibly challenging the first few weeks um, trying to make sense of everything. Mm. It's a fascinating response that because so often when I do ask that question, it tends to be the case that the people closest to home are the real influential figures behind today's leaders. And it just does go to show that some of the most important people out there can be those that are closest to us from time to time. Um, Thinking about now um, sort of the experience that you've had since 2005, growing the business and getting through not just one crisis, but also a second now. um, If you had to give some advice to somebody of the younger generation that might be tuning into this, that's maybe looking to start their own business or step into a leadership role within an established firm. What sort of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Um, I guess uh, from, from my perspective, 
I started in business incredibly young. Well, not incredibly young. I was I was 21 and, and sort of graduating from university. Um, I I kind of followed my own intuition an awful lot. Um, and I think it's quite important to be true to yourself, um, especially as a, I say a leader. I, I still felt very much feel as though um, I'm a, I'm, I'm very much kind of learning as I go, um, mm. even 15 years on. But I think it's so important to kind of be authentic um, because there's, especially when I kind of work with the, the, the great teams that we have, the, the great people that we have in our business, it's, it's, it's very difficult um, or would be very difficult if it wasn't, what we were trying to do wasn't from an authentic place. Um, I'm not sure that makes sense, but mm. it's, uh, I think that's quite an important thing to do. It's, it's, also, it's also very important to kind of um, sort of read and, and sort of learn different areas, especially where you feel as though you, you're not entirely sort of comfortable or strong um, in sort of certain areas. But I think that you need to have that kind of um, the confidence in, in your own sort of instinct, I guess, um, which doesn't, I guess it's not easy. That's not necessarily something that's quite really sort of straightforward to, to sort of, uh, to sort of implement, I guess. No, I certainly understand where you're coming from, Mike. I think the authenticity side of things is incredibly important because it does enable you to sort of get onto an equal footing with those people around you and sort of create that sort of idea of empathy and that aura of understanding as well. But also most importantly, um, it is a constant process of learning and development is leadership. Even when we are leading a business, we are never a finished article. There's always more we can learn. And quite a lot of that is also through experience as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just before we do sort of wrap things up on the program this morning, Mike, because I'm conscious that we are short of time, I do want to talk about the uh, the future because um, we know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to what they call the new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. But what do you, are you really looking to achieve over the next year at Kit Locker? And what is it that you're really hoping for the business to sort of be at in terms of a point in time in 12 months? Where is the business going to be then, do you feel? Um. I think it's obviously difficult to, to to kind of understand and and see exactly where we're going to be. But from our perspective, we had some quite um, clear plans that we were in the process of kind of uh, implementing prior to COVID striking. What we're seeing now is that we we're, we're very fortunate as a business. Business, I think, in that that certain markets have come back into play. Um, which gives us a sort of sense of normality to some degree. Um, I don't think we're through the worst of, of this, but I think it gives us the opportunity to get back into our planning and kind of implementation of, of quite important plans for us um, to continue to sort of revolutionise and sort of change our marketplace as best we can. Um, and I think that's going to be even more crucial now. Um, and this, I say this kind of acceleration to digital, it's, that's very much a buzzword in the, the sort of sportswear industry. From our perspective, it's something we've always done. But what we're trying to do is just kind of push and sort of incrementally change things, um, which just allows us to sort of drive efficiency through the business. Mm. And it, in 12 months' time, we're on we're on a relatively kind of, or were on a relatively significant growth tangent. Um, it would be good for us to kind of stabilise over the course of the next sort of six to 12 months and then uh, sort of look to push on probably in sort of the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and, and kind of get back to this kind of growth phase that we were looking at. 
Mm. It certainly is a period of change, and I certainly hope that you can be looking at a positive trajectory once again sooner rather than later there, Mike. Um, but also, just considering how enlightening it's been having you join us on the uh, the programme today, I think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the air with us in a few months' time just to see how things are coming along and whether we are seeing that positive trajectory that we hope to see. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you ever so much for having me, Scott. It's been a real pleasure, Mike. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you this morning. And most importantly, until we do also uh, speak again, hopefully in future, do please continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on, because there are certainly a great many variables in how all of this could pan out as of yet. Thank you. I was speaking on today's programme to Mike Kent, Managing Director at KitLocker.com. I would also just reiterate that last message to everybody tuning in and listening today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Now it is time to hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retirement, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and become a champion for both mental health and charitable causes. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. And that is coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, 
And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a on. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups. And this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night. And it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.